Okay, welcome everybody to this 63rd Fireside Chat with Tom Campbell, Oliver Weiss as our server and moderator, and Justin, our sound and editor. Um, today we've got two new people with us, Luis and Sasha, welcome to the Fireside Chat. And let's go ahead with the first question from Titi coming from Sweden. She's got some limited time on her uh, router. Self-imposed, but please go ahead with your question, Titi. Hello, Tom. Hello, Titi. I'm so glad to see you again, although I listen to you every day, almost. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I have two questions today, and they are about mostly about fear work. Um, I have had a lot of use of your description of the three pathways of growth. Uh, for anyone who's not familiar with them, they include the warrior path, the surrender path, and the service path. So, but I sometimes go down the slippery slope using uh, the warrior path. Um, so, what happens is that I found it a little bit hard to keep the fear work positive, so it gets a little bit negative. <laughs> um, but I do like this path best. But a while ago, I realized that I needed to focus more on the surrender approach in order to learn presence and to find out if that would be more efficient. And it was indeed very helpful. So... It's been a great method for getting out of the thinking ego identity and getting to the being identity. So after taking the first steps into presence, I would like to, oh, that sounded funny. I mean, presence, <laughs> anyway, but, but I would really like to understand more about presence. Uh, I do a lot of yoga and that tradition has a strong focus on body presence. Uh, but on the other hand, I have started to experience like a meditation presence in my regular life. And that presence feels different. Um, that presence is not body related. It's more like being in a cloud, not in a body. It's like, yeah, um, and uh, as I'm a newbie on presence, I would like to understand more about it and what kind of presence to aim for, if it's the more like the body focus or more like um, just awareness. If you under Do you understand what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's a little hard to... I, I think so. Yeah. Um, this idea of being present... Um, You, you can be, you know, it's really a focus of awareness is what we're talking about. You know, how do you focus your awareness? And if you, if you, you mentioned that you had a body presence more, that, that that's the way yoga tends to work. Of course, yoga is a very physical thing. You stretch, you know, it's your, your body and your posture is all very part of the meditation. So it's kind of a body centered thing. Um, I think that the the body centeredness is often there 
not only to make you flexible and therefore make the body uh, um, kind of less of a problem, if you will, because if you have aches and pains and problems in the body, then that tends to make it difficult for you to let go of the body. The body's constantly, you know, nudging you for input. So it's it's good to uh, do those sorts of things. But what we really want to do, even in yoga, is to let go of the physical. And the body belongs to the physical. We want to embrace the non-physical, which, you know, I refer to that as point consciousness in that process of, of letting go of the physical and embracing the non-physical. And in point consciousness, you aren't really aware of your body directly. You're not really aware of your environment directly. Uh, you kind of are just aware that you exist. It's the, you know, it's kind of the Descartes moment that, you know, I exist. I am. You know. So that is the, that is the, the best place to be. But now that's a little confusing to people because they have a hard time letting go of the physical world and letting go of their body. Well, you don't have to let go of it initially to the point that you're completely unaware of it. You just have to stop processing it. Stop paying attention to it. And you, some, some types of meditation have you look at breath work. You know, where you uh, look at your breathing, you know, slow and even and in and out, and you keep your focus, attention on breathing. That's kind of the, you know, the, the two most common meditation styles is one, keeping track of your breath, and the other one is saying a mantra. Those are the two kind of basic systems. And both of them end up with the same result because saying a mantra just fills your head with a nonsense sound that's non-operative. So you're not thinking about anything. You know, it's just a, it's a word, it's a sound that doesn't really have an, you know, a, a noun or an adjective or, you know, it doesn't have a language really attached to it. It's just a sound. And it's easy just to let that sound go. And eventually in a meditation, you do want to let the mantra go. You don't want to keep saying you just use that as a tool to get to the point where you're no longer processing physical data. Okay, now in the when you when you're doing the uh, the the, the uh, breathing kind of exercise where you focus on your breathing, it's the same thing. Breathing is so automatic and so boring that after you focus on it for about ten minutes, you kind of forget about it. You no longer focus on it. So both will take you to a state where you're not really aware of yourself, your body, or your environment. Now, when I say aware of it, I don't mean that if, you know, let's say you're in a, a city environment, that if some car outside, you know, uh, beeped his horn, that you wouldn't hear it. It just means you're not processing it. It doesn't mean that you don't, that you don't realize that you don't have a body. It means you stop processing that body information. Well, when you stop processing it, very quickly, you will get to the point where you forget about it. And when you forget about it, you know, you actually, you know, aren't aware any longer that you have a body or an outside environment until something unusual happens, like you get an itch on your forehead 
Then you're aware of your body. See, then you can take your hand and scratch the itch and go right back and it won't bother you. Or if you hear, you know, the phone ring or a, ho a horn honking or a door slamming or something like that, you can be aware of it, but then you just let it go and come back. So that's what it means. It means you just stop processing physical data. And when you do that, now you are only really aware of mind space. And when you're in this point where you're only aware of mind space, you you should be in a spot in a place where there's no there's no thoughts coming through. You're not wondering about things, you're not analyzing, you're not judging. And if you're sitting there thinking, "Oh, am I in mind space? Let's see." You know, am I in point consciousness? Well, let me see. Do I hear anything? Do I, you know, do I smell anything? If you're constantly thinking, then you're not there yet. You have to get there and just be there. Just float there. And I often describe it as like, uh, you know, uh, you are a point of awareness floating in a void. Okay. But that doesn't mean, again, that you won't hear a door slam or a phone ring. You will. You just don't process it. You, and if there are people around, you know, eventually you, you make this a more robust process. In the beginning, you try to find a quiet place where it's not, you know, where you kind of have very little physical input because that makes it easier if you're someplace that's quiet, that there's no lights flashing, that, you know, you, your environment is benign as you can get it. That makes it easier in the beginning. But eventually you want it to be robust enough that you can stop processing physical space selectively. So if you happen to be sitting on a bench at a bus stop, and yes, there's traffic and there's people walking by and you can hear conversations, but you just stop processing it. And then you can meditate almost anywhere. It doesn't have to be quiet. It doesn't have to be dark. It can be any place and you just learn to turn off your processing of that extraneous information. So in that point, your your meditation then becomes a very strong, robust meditation that you can do almost any place. So that's where we'd like to end up. But that may take years before you get to that point. It's not something that, you know, a couple of weeks practice and you're not there yet. Don't get frustrated. That takes some time. So that's really where we're trying to get is this point consciousness state where the mind is blank. It's just open. It's aware that it is, but it's not really doing anything in particular. It's just there. Now, this spot is where, you know, is where we launch from, if you like. That's, you can think of that as the launch pad. From there, you can use your intent to go places, see things, gather uh, information, um, you know, whatever it is that you'd, that you'd like to do, heal. Uh, connect with somebody else, communicate. All of those things then can be done from that doorway, from that spot. But that's like the starting, the starting spot. Now you can just stay there in that, in that point consciousness state and not do anything. It's a very relaxing, it's a deeply relaxing, a very refreshing place. And you can just be there and not really think about anything. Or you can just be there and let your mind wander across problems or things that you're trying to solve and solutions will come to you see so 
that getting to that state where you're no longer operating in the physical and no longer operating, you know, with your body, that's the state that's that's really productive for everything else. So we just practice on that. And most people can only hold that state for just, you know, some at the beginning, just a few seconds. And then thoughts come in and they start judging it. Am I doing it right? Is this really point consciousness? And, you know, they do analysis. They compare it to what they felt before. And all of that judging, analysis, and comparing is all done in the intellect. And that's not the space we want to be in. This point consciousness space where you let go of the physical is an intuitive space, not an intellectual space. It's a feeling space more than it is a thinking space. Although you can use your your mind, your cognitive function, your intellect, if you will, to give yourself direction. What do I want to do now? Where do I want to go? But as soon as you start judging, analyzing, and comparing, that that's ego space, and that bumps you right out of that bumps you right out of it. So it's just a matter of practice. You know, people who you know who are really good at meditating have a very robust meditation. Have probably been have probably been meditating for a decade. You know, it takes a lot of time to practice it. And the more you practice it, and you don't have to practice it for a long time, practice it for two hours isn't going to, you know, once a day is probably not going to give you as much um, robustness in your meditation as practicing it for, you know, 20 minutes, two or three times a day. And the 20 minutes, two or three times a day takes less time. So it's more the process of going there, coming back, going there, coming back is what's important, not just going there and staying there. So an exercise would be just to go there, float around in point consciousness, come back, then go there again, then come back. And after you've done that 20 or 30 times, you start to get a real good sense of what it feels like. And then it becomes like just slipping on an old pair of shoes. It just fits, you know, and it feels very comfortable. So I would I would suggest doing that, just going, coming back, going, coming back. Hold it for as long as you can. And with time, you'll be able to hold it as long as you want to. You'll be able to go there and stay there, you know, for half hour, an hour, two hours, however long, you know, you want to. And it'll be a very stable state. So that's really, I think, what we're, we're talking about. Um, there's another word that's talked about. You said presence. Um, you know, there's a, <clears throat> another word that I don't know if it's a language problem that might be confused here, and that's being present. But being yeah. present is yeah. a little no, different thing. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. I think that's what I mean, being here and now in the being space instead of being in, in the thoughts. Yeah. That's what well, I was saying, that, that this this has sort of been more and more common, that, that being in the being space and in the meditative state, although I'm doing regular everyday things, so yes. well, being to- yeah, being present is a little different. Being present means yes, being being with whatever you're doing. Yeah. In other words, do ever do whatever it is you're doing. Do it fully. Don't, yeah, exactly. Don't be a, don't be a zombie. Don't yeah. don't be walking around 
you know, like a, you know, like a zombie where you're doing things, but you're not really paying attention to what you're doing. If there's something worth doing, it's worth doing right. And if it's worth doing right, then it's worth putting your whole focus on that thing. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't think because a lot of doing things require you to think. You know, sometimes they say you're in the present. Don't go in the future. Don't go in the past. But that's not really true. That's not the point. Future and past isn't isn't the problem. Sometimes what you're doing requires you to use memory. You know, if what you're doing is cooking, then you have to use your memory about what it tasted like the last time you did that. And do you want to change it? So that's part of it. Or if what you're doing is getting ready for something, then you have to be aware of the time because you're getting ready for something. Mm-hmm. So it's not that you really have to let go of future and past as it is. You just have to be there with whatever it is you're doing and do it wholly and fully. Exactly. So you have to, so you have to understand why you're doing it. You have to accept why you're doing it. You see, what we're trying to get rid of is you working Strictly at the intellectual level. We're trying to get you to get in the intuitive level more. Yeah. And when you're in the intuitive level more, things become easier. Mm. What you do becomes better. Mm. And when you're also tuned into that intuitive level and not just into intellectual level. So let's say the reason why you're doing it is because you have to. It's not just something you want to do. It's something you have to do. Well, then you have to let go of that stuff. Well, I have to. I really don't want to do this, but it's my duty and I have to. And, you know, all that maybe, you know, some some self-pity. You know, why should I be doing this? You know, somebody else should be doing it. So you need to let go of all of that. That's what we're really trying to avoid, that kind of stuff going on where you're not just doing it because it's it's your task to do for whatever reason. Accept the task that it's yours and then do it fully and completely without complaint, without nagging, without doing something else in your mind at the same time. Just focus on that and do that. So a lot of times it confuses people. They say, stay in the present. Don't get in the past or future. That's not really the key. Mm -hmm. Don't be doing the next task already while you still, you know, doing this task. You know, even something so simple as eating is so much better if you do it in the present moment. Mm. And you can notice this. Everybody can notice this. If you are tasting something, you're eating food and it's particularly tasty, if you stop doing anything else and just enjoy that flavor, Mm. it tastes so much better and it's so much more rewarding. But if at the same time that you're, that you're, you know, put that spoonful in your mouth. You're also doing something else, you know, uh, getting things in and out of the refrigerator, moving pots and pans. You're, you know, you're doing things, whatever. You'll notice, you hardly notice what it tastes like. And by the time you're done with the meal, you don't even remember what anything tastes like. You didn't really enjoy it because your mind was scattered doing other things all the time you're having the meal. So just, you know, that's just a, a good place to practice being present mm. where you're not, you know, your conversation and eating come serially, not in parallel. You chat a little while, perhaps, and then you eat. But when you put that bite in your mouth, you taste it. You, yes. you know, you're with it. It's something and you appreciate it. There was a lot of trouble 
that people went to, probably a number of people went to, to bring that to your plate, and you appreciate all that, and you appreciate the flavor, and you enjoy it, rather than just putting stuff in and doing stuff, and, you know, you kind of, we do that, and it kind of really takes the relaxation and community and the enjoyment out of food. Food now is just a, you know, something, uh, you know, that we shovel in our mouth because our body needs it. And we really don't taste it, don't particularly enjoy it, don't particularly not enjoy it. It just, you can't even remember it. You know? So that's just one detail, but that's true of every little part of your life. Yeah. You know, something as mundane as eating, you know, that's also true of washing dishes. You know, it's true of cleaning up. It's true of everything you do should be done like that. Be in that moment. You know, and if it's something you really don't like doing but you have to do, well, you do it with grace and you do it with acceptance. It needs to be done and you're going to do it. And by doing that, you will make things more pleasant for other people. And if you get rid of that, see, that helps you get rid of the ego. It's not about you. It's about what you can do for others. So it brings all this stuff together. That's what makes it kind of a powerful idea that be here now. It helps you get rid of your ego. Because if you be here now and what you're doing is you're running a, a, a self-pity, you know, uh, trip in your mind about, oh, I don't like doing this. Why can't somebody else wash the dishes for a change? You know, I cooked the meal and now I got to clean it up too. Well, then you're, you're not being there now you're doing something else mm. so you approach those dishes and say well they need to be done nobody else will do them or wants to do them or do them so i will do them once you accept that let go of any negativity that goes with it just do it and do it gratefully do it with you know with grace mm. it's something you're doing to contribute and that's a good thing so that's the idea. You know, we, we need to stop all the peripheral processing going on and just do what we do and do it with love mm. and with caring, not with aggravation. Mm. Amen. <laughs> yeah, but that's being present, which is a little different than, than presence as you have them. I will look them up saying. to understand. Yeah. yeah. I was using the wrong word. I'm sorry. Yeah. I thought that might be a problem. You know, English is not your first language, though you speak it so very, very well. Uh, people might not know that. You do speak it very well, but... Uh, oh, thank you. But, well, yeah, so, but that this helps a lot. And this was exactly what I was thinking about. And, and also, because it gets a little confusing with the yoga teachers telling you to, to be present in your body. But I think it's more like being focused on what you do with your whole awareness. Exactly. See, with yoga, what they're doing is things with their body, right? Mm -hmm. They're they're stretching. They're doing postures. So they want you to be mindful. That's another word. Mindful of of the body and how it feels, mm -hmm. because eventually that will lead to a meditation. Because being mindful of a body that just is. Does, is, is not very operative. That's one of those non-operative things. It's sort of like make your body the mantra yeah, kind yeah. of things, you see? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But okay. you, you do everything with a purpose and with grace, and you do it because it's useful. 
to others. And mm. if you start worrying about that you do more than other people or that sort of thing, then that just gets in the way. You'll do the task anyway, but you'll leave it grumpy. Mm. You'll leave it negative. Mm. And your whole life will be more negative because of it. So find pleasure in whatever you do. Mm. You know, whether it's eating food or washing dishes or, you know, tending a garden or whatever, find mm. pleasure in it. And the pleasure, if it's an unpleasant task, the pleasure is in that you're getting something done that needs to be done. Mm. Something that, that will be good for not only you, but for others. And find that pleasure mm. rather than grouse about, you know, oh, I have to pull all these darn weeds. You know, then if you approach it like that, you end up coming away from it worn out. Whereas mm. if you approach it with a positive, caring thing, then you come away from it with energy mm. and positive. So that's a good question. And, uh, you know, I took a lot of time with this answer because probably almost everybody out there who listens to this could benefit from kind of understanding this very basic approach to life and the things one has to do in one's life. Mm. They focused on it. And you'll notice, you know, everyone out there listening, that if you just take time to pay attention to the, you know, to the taste of your food, you'll enjoy your, your meal so much more and walk away with it feeling positive and happy because a lot of people put a lot of effort into you getting that meal and you can appreciate all of that with every bite. And appreciate the flavor. Stop doing, stop multitasking. Stop doing two or three things at once. Just be present in the moment. I think this answers my second question also. <laughs> We're good. But maybe, maybe we could, um, maybe, I think I would like to read it if, if, if it's okay. Okay. Because I think there is more to it, maybe. Um, and this question is about working with an addiction. And I have worked with this addiction many years, and I would like to do more progress on it. Uh, my other fear-based behaviors are getting better, but this one seems to be a really tough one. So the intention is surely there. I would really like to get rid of it since I found it very dysfunctional. And the method I've used so far is mostly to get, to let go of the fears that are nourishing it. And that is actually the same three basic fears that nourishes my ego and my other fear-based behaviors, as far as I'm concerned right now, as I understand it. Um, but that can change. But so logi logically, Uh, working on these basic fears should do the work, I think. Uh, but I wonder if it could be that the removal of this behavior comes further on in the process. Uh, so I just have to be patient. I have also considered trying other methods like working on behavior in the CBT way or surrender from the craving. So I was just thinking, oh, do you have any good ideas about this? Well, let me ask you, what is the CBT way? Uh, cognitive behavioral um, therapy. Uh, it's like when you work on the behavior. 
instead yeah. of working on the underlying fears. Like when you're afraid of spiders, you sort of get closer and closer mm -hmm. to them by, yeah, you know, small steps. So, so you say this is an addiction and it's a craving of some sort. Yeah. Well, if you're if you're addicted to a substance or to anything, you can be addicted to a behavior. You can be a, no, almost, you know, you <laughs> can be addicted. You can be addicted to all kinds of things. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a there's a thin line between ha habit and addiction. Mm. They both they both seem to see they both seem to to um, act in much the same way. If you have habits, mm -hmm. then but there is a difference. With with a habit, you just do it because you're used to doing it. You know, it's just part of the way you are and who you are. You just do that, and that's just a habit. Now, an addiction means usually that there is some, you know, physiological or psychological need that you have that's being filled by doing that thing, mm -hmm. and that you do it because you, you need to get that need met. Mm. You know, so your physical addiction means your body needs something. Your body's craving something. You know, a psychological addiction is something you have to do because of fear or something else. Is you know, you have some other need that you're that you're trying to fulfill with that action, and we can then you know call that a psychological addiction. Something that you continue to do and continue to do, even though it's dysfunctional, you continue to do because you have this need that's being fulfilled by that action. So one, separate separate the habits from the true addictions because it may just be a habit, in which case you just overcome that with an intent. You catch yourself doing it, you just stop and say no, and you do that so often that it gets weaker and weaker over time. Mm. With the addiction, you have to you have to work a little harder and a little longer. The habit is a little easier to overcome. With a true addiction, um, you have a withdrawal from not doing it. You don't really have withdrawal from a habit. You may be, you may feel like doing it, but it's just, again, it's a habit. From an addiction, you'll get withdrawal. And while you have that withdrawal, you just have to be strong enough to deny, you know, whatever it is you're addicted to. If you're addicted to, you know, to carbohydrates or to sugar or to caffeine or to nicotine, you know, there's lots of things in our world that, that people are addicted to. Yeah. Uh, if you're addicted to those things, then when you, you know, you just have to avoid them entirely until your body gets over its need for them. Mm -hmm. And that may take months. But then it's just being scrupulously aware of, not using the substance you're, you know, you're addicted to in that sense. If it's an emotional need that's pushing you, not a, you know, not a physical need, then you should do the same thing that you would do with a habit. You know, when you start to catch yourself doing it, you should, you know, catch yourself and say, no, I don't want to be like that. And it's very important to say, I don't want to be like that. Not that I don't want to act like that, because otherwise we're back to behavior, and behavior is not the point. Being is the important is the important thing here. So you just have to catch yourself and have that intent. I do not want to be 
like that. I don't want to be that way. And sometimes it helps to find the fear that's driving you and try to get rid of that fear as you've been doing. Sometimes that's very difficult for people. Sometimes people uh, really can't find that fear or name it. It's just something that's unnamed inside them, you know, and they can't really find a cause or whatever. In that case, you just need to have a strong intention to not be it. And whenever you catch yourself succumbing to that addiction, take a few minutes just to sit down and say, I don't want to be that way and say that five, ten times. Just impress you with your with your intent. Mm. I don't want to be that way. I don't want to be that way. I don't mm. want to be that way. And you have to put some effort into it. Mm. Take five minutes and just iterate it over and over again. Yeah. And then go on about your life, you see. Mm. And then when it happens again, do the same thing. Just take some time out. And if you happen to be in a place where you can't take that time out, you're right in the middle of a conversation or something else, then store it for later. And as soon as you get a few minutes to yourself, go back and tell yourself 10 or 20 times, I don't want to be that way. And in your mind, you're thinking of the way you don't want to be. And then visually, you know, you can almost like see a picture of that and draw draw that cross bar across it. I guess you can't see that. Draw that, that cross, you know, on the signs that means no. You know, visually put that bar across it that says, yeah, yeah no, don't do that. You know, like, don't park here. They'll have a P, and then they'll have a bar across it that says, no parking. Well, imagine that behavior, and put a big red line right across it and say, no, don't be that way. So it's the amount of effort you put in to not being that way is what actually makes you change. But that's done then at the intention level. But if you just casually say, well, I really don't want to be that way, and then go on with your life, you're not going to change much. Mm-hmm. You really have to take some effort to reinforce that. Mm. And then you'll begin to see change happen more rapidly. Okay, great advice. Yes, I will try this. Wonderful. <laughs> Many thanks, Tom. <laughs> That's very helpful. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Thank you for your question. <clears throat> Luis, if you'd like to go ahead with your questions. So my first question will be, uh, I titled the question, is being afraid of uncertainty the mother of all fears? Because my uh, main fear will be uh, related with uh, flying on an airplane. And uh, as we, as I was heading back home from the immersive, I had to take two flights that were during the night. And months ago, it would have been impossible to me to take those. But somehow I was feeling I was uh, following your advice, and because of the immersive and the whole experience was so was so positive to me, so I just took it. I just took the challenge, and it was possible. I mean, it was not my favorite thing, but uh, but I went through it. So I learned maybe two things when I was, uh, you know, setting my intent of facing my fear and bringing courage to the whole situation, I learned two things. One, it was that I was doing it to myself. I was torturing myself because really the the airplane and the turbulences and the night, everything was okay. It was just an airplane moving in the night. And the other thing is that uh, I had the feeling that that fear that I was facing 
had to do with the rest of my life in many, many ways. Like when I go to a group of people, when I meet someone new, even the fireside chat and all those things. So I was really pleased by it. Like uh, I saw how my work there was going to benefit my life. But I still wonder if uh, if that's the root of it, because we, we always say fear of this and fear of that. You know, we name fears in many different ways. But uh, I had that feeling that it might be, in my case, case at least, just a big feeling of uncertainty with uh, a lot of branches. Okay, well, a fear of uncertainty is a very common thing, and a lot of people are afraid of uncertainty. Uh, the fear of death is also, you know, has a lot to do with uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And so that's pretty common. But there's another another fear that I would toss out there that may be just as important to you as, as that, and that is the fear of not being in control. Mm-hmm. And those two may be similar in the sense that if you're in control, you have more certainty about the outcome. And mm-hmm. when you're not in control, you have less certainty about the outcome. So those two mm-hmm. work together, but they're really different things. One's mm-hmm. just, you know, the fear of uncertainty is, is really different than the, than the fear of not being in control. And both of those may indeed turn up all through your life. And flying just happens to be one of them. Mm-hmm. You know? So I would look at the not being in control as a, as a fear. A lot of people who tend to be a very left brain have a need for control. Mm-hmm. People who are logical process oriented have a need for control. That's how they get through their life. That's how they sort things out in their life. You have to be mm-hmm. in control. Otherwise anything could happen. Now anything could happen. Now we're back to uncertainty again, you see. (laughs) So that's usually the base fear is that here you are, you know, what, 20,000 feet in the air, and your life and your existence is entirely in the hands of a pilot, a co-pilot, a bunch of mechanics who were supposed to make sure the plane was, you know, in uh, good shape. Uh, and the fact that there are, you know, 10,000 parts in this airplane, of which probably 50 or 60 are critical to it staying in the air. And we know sometimes things go wrong with parts. Sometimes they just mm-hmm. fail. You know, it's just the way it is. So now here you are, totally out of control, and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. You have no way of manipulating or nudging or doing anything. You don't even have a parachute in which you could jump maybe and get to the ground safely, you see. So it's that is what generally frightens people about flying. It's the lack of control. And with that lack of control comes uncertainty. But often the lack of control is the more basic thing. And the uncertainty is the thing that you get when you don't have control. Mm-hmm. So, but that should turn up if you have, you know, uh, problems with with fear of lack of control that should turn up in all sorts of things in your life mm-hmm. because there's lots of things in your life where you're not in control and they probably make you uneasy because when you're not in control then you're not sure what the outcome is going to be mm-hmm. 
and then it's then it's back to uncertainty. So you see how those two things go together? But mm-hmm. if you if look at the control, that's usually the base thing. And it's the lack of control that creates the uncertainty. So it's mm-hmm. not often the uncertainty that's really the base the base problem. It's the lack of control. Being out of control mm-hmm. is the problem. And for people who order their lives very carefully, uh, making sure that they do control as many variables as possible, being in a situation where they control absolutely none of the important variables is scary. <laughs> and that means you just have to learn to say, well, you know, let's look at the statistics. So many millions of people fly, you know, so many hundreds of people die in that, you know, maybe in a year or maybe in a, you know, however long. So the mm-hmm. probability that, you know, you're going to be on that plane at 20,000 feet when some critical part malfunctions is probably very, very small. Now, what's the difference between that and an automobile? Actually, the probability of you riding around in an automobile or driving an automobile is much greater of you being hurt or killed. But you are not just the passenger. You're in control. And you're probably a person that would rather drive than be a passenger. Because when you drive, you're in control. When you're a passenger, you have a little bit of control. You can always shout, watch out for that truck, you know. You can be a backseat driver, which is what mm-hmm. people do who need to be in control when they're not driving. They become backseat drivers. You mm-hmm. know, they're trying to exercise some control over what's going on. But because you have some control in a car, that doesn't bother you nearly as much as being in an airplane where you have absolutely no control whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And you need to uh, let that need for control go some. Because that's based on a fear of things not working out right, of things mm-hmm. not being the way you want them, and you kind of and you let that go, then you are more able to just let things be the way they are. Mm-hmm. So even when it comes to people, you know you don't control other people. Well, if you really want to control other people, then you tend to be a bit manipulative in the sense that you do mm-hmm. these things so that other people will do those things. Mm-hmm. And you act this way and you do this because that will help these other people do what you need them to do. And it doesn't mean you're reaching out and manipulating them like a dictator. It just means that you're careful about what you say and do and how you say and do it in order to get other people to act more the way you want. Mm-hmm. Say, so, well, that's really not very helpful either. Because mm-hmm. the problem with that is, is that at least, you know, two thirds of the time, they don't do what you want. Mm-hmm. And then you have stress, and then you have <laughs> angst, and then you have negativity because mm-hmm. it's not working according to plan. You see, so getting rid of the of, uh, this fear of being in control helps you just in all parts of your life, just dealing with other people. If you just say, "Well, people are who they are. I don't control them, and that's okay. I'll mm-hmm. deal with them, however it comes out." Mm-hmm. So now look at look at life from the perspective of things happen and I get to make choices. You know, I get Mm -hmm. to respond to those things that happens. So if you go through life with the idea that stuff happens and then I'll deal with it, then life suddenly gets a lot easier and you'll find that things actually will get a lot better because in the process of wanting and trying to control everything, we generally create suboptimal things. We end Mm -hmm. up, 
we end up being a big part of our problem because other people notice that you're trying to control, that you're trying to manipulate and make it come out the way you want it to come out. And almost everybody instinctually pushes back when they mm-hmm. feel like they're being controlled and manipulated. They don't like it. So it ends up creating an environment where things happen you know, less the way you want them to when you try to make them come out the way you want them to. And the startling discovery is that when you stop trying to control anything, you realize that nothing really needs your control other than yourself. <laughs> you need to control yourself. And everything else just works out the way it works out. <clears throat> and that tends to be optimal. You look back after living it this way for a while, you'll look back on things and think, well, See, if I had tried to control it the way I would have thought it should have gone, mm-hmm. it wouldn't have gone nearly as well as it did. Mm-hmm. And when you get to that point, then it's easy just to let go. Things happen. And if you're in an airplane, the thing that could happen would be that the airplane crashes and kills everybody. All right. Well, if that happens, then that happens and that's okay. You're willing to you know, let that happen. If that's it. Now, it's not likely to happen. It's a really long shot. So you say, well, I need to get from point A to point B, and I'd really, you know, need to make that trip. Is it worth the one in 10,000 or the one in 100,000 probability? Well, generally you'd say, yeah, life is risky. You know, just walking out of your house is risky, right? So you have to live a life and take some risk. And when Mm -hmm. you do that, when you accept that risk, you have to accept it without worrying about it. You just accept it and say, all right, I'm going to walk out of my house now and you know, maybe somebody will, you know, werve off off the street across the sidewalk and sidewalk and run over me in my own yard. You know, maybe, but that's only a maybe one in a hundred thousand or one in a million that that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to worry about it. So that's just accepting the risk. And if the worst happens, it happens. You'll deal with it, and mm-hmm. everybody else will have to deal with it as well. Because if you're the airplane, your in falls out of the sky, then you're dealing with it as easy. You just sit there until you disappear. You know, it's not a it's not a hard thing to do at all. But it's harder for other people to deal with because maybe you're the breadwinner someplace, and you know you're important to other people. Well, they will have to deal with that too. They need to have the same attitude. When things happen, you just have to deal with it the best way you can. And when you become that way, and if other people become that way, now you can just live life as it comes, and everybody learns by dealing with it as it happens. Mm-hmm. So you're, the people that stay at home don't say, oh, no, you know, my husband's going to get on an airplane. You know, they don't, they don't worry about it. It's just, yeah, okay, you got to go someplace, and you're going to get on an airplane. And you kind of accept that that's okay. You can't worry about what if. That's useless worry. Mm-hmm. And if you can't control any of the variables, worrying about what if is not only useless, but it's, it's you know, a, it's, a, it's just a negative thing with no upside. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, look at the, look at the uh, control issue. And if you can wrestle that to the ground, I suspect all the rest of your life will get a lot easier and be a lot more optimized. Yeah, thank you. I mean, even the the work that we were doing, uh, the immersive and the one that I do with the binaural beats, I see my fear also there. When I get to a place and then I can't for some reason go any further than that, 
I see that work and I see how it benefits even when I practice that I am able to go a little bit further and also my way, uh, the way I behave in daily life, it's gotten better somehow. But my second question will be um, that sometimes I feel that it's so strong, it's, uh, it's really uh, like so stressful that I tend to think in plan B or plan C. But I do realize plan B or plan C being, for example, changing my flight. If I don't like it at night, I will have a better, better experience if I have it like during next morning or something. I could change my flight or I couldn't, I could take like an anxiety pill, something like that. But I do realize I will not be facing my fear. So my second question will be about uh, always facing the fear no matter what, uh, not fearing uh, that I will be burned out or that I will spend so much energy that maybe my body will maybe not be healthy for my body. I don't know. Uh, so I think what I'm saying is, 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 is it always the right choice to face your fear no matter what? Um, well, I wouldn't say no matter what. You know, facing a fear often is done in stages. Uh-huh. You know, when somebody, let's say, has a... Uh, um, a fear of, you know, spiders. Mm -hmm. Well, the way they deal with that kind of a phobia is a little bit at a time. You know, they don't say just face it no matter what. Here, we're going to throw you in a room full of spiders. You know, we're going <laughs> to lock the door and deal with it. You know, that isn't good because people, the fear will overcome people and, you know, it will be very hard for them to deal with it. So they deal with it first by talking about spiders, learning about spiders, learning about all the neat things spiders do and all the help they give us by eating bugs and et cetera, et cetera. And then the second step is looking at pictures of spiders in a book. Then the third step is touching the picture of the spider that's in the book. Then you go into a place where there is one little spider and it's inside of a bottle or inside of a cage and, you know, and looking at it. You see, they just keep building it up until eventually you can walk into a room where there is just a loose spider in there with a spider web and you go in and look at it and be awed at the at the intricacy of the web you know and mm -hmm. and look at the spider with a big magnifying glass and how pretty it is and that sort of thing so it's a it's a slow step by step getting out of the fear it's typically the way people work with those kinds of of you know fears of a particular thing well, when we deal with fears that aren't a particular thing, but fears that are more uh, general than that, like, you know, a fear of not being in control, it's the same sort of thing. You don't have to jump into the, you know, into the fire and think that that's the best way to do it. You can say, well, I'll only schedule my flights at night or I'll only schedule my flights during the day or this or that until I get used to flying. Say, so if I just fly at night, that's easier because I don't even have the sense of being up high because I look out the window and it's just dark, you know, or I see all the pretty lights down below and it's very, it's very pretty. So I, I don't mind, you know, that I'm, you know, it's nice to have a, a view from, from far up. So do things that make it easier for you to deal with it and then keep raising the bar slowly until you get rid of it. So no, not just, jump in, you know, make it the worst possible case and jump in and do it. People can do that sometimes and do it successfully, you know. 
that's the old thing about, you know, the best way to swim is for somebody to throw you into deep water. Well, that's probably not true, though some people, that's how they learn to swim. They got thrown into deep water and, you know, it was like swim or drown. Well, they found out that they could doggy paddle or do something at least to get over to the side. And then they realized, oh, well, if I get in water, I can always do that. Now some of the fear goes away. But I don't think that's really a good way to learn how to swim. <laughs> You're just as likely to traumatize somebody so they'll never, ever get in the water ever again by doing that. So though that can be a good lesson, it can be, it can backfire and make it even more difficult. So I'd say work up on it. But don't trick yourself, you know, realize that, okay, if I only fly at night or only fly in the day or only fly, you know, shorter flights or whatever you think, only fly in big airplanes, most all the problems in airplanes all tend to be with privately owned little airplanes, you know, mm -hmm. airplanes that seat two and three and four and five people, that sort of thing. Um, that's where most of the problems are. The big, the big airlines hardly ever have problems. So you may just want to stay out of little airplanes and fly in big airplanes. You know, the, the statistics would support that being a much safer way to fly. <clears throat> so yeah, work your way up. Take your time with it. You know, that, that point where you're in, where you're in point consciousness and something's starting to happen and you just stop. That is often again, because once you get into the intuitive side, you're out of control. You no longer control what's happening. It's not mm -hmm. you behind the wheel, you know, with your hands on the levers and the steering wheel at all. Experience just happens. And if you need to have control, then that's a problem. Well, if it just happens, how do I know what it is? How do I know it's real? How do, you know, if I can't control it and make it do what I want, then is it useful? And you have to realize that, yes, it is. Me controlling it doesn't make it more useful. It just mm -hmm. makes it more sterile. It's not mm -hmm. as likely to be as rich or as interesting or as informative mm -hmm. if it's not my control. So it, again, work up on it. Sometimes sneaking up on it is, is a better strategy than leaping into it. But it just depends on you, your personality and how you feel. So if you start to push yourself a little too far and you can feel yourself backing up, you know, then, uh, Back off a little bit. Work your way up to it a little more slowly. Better to get there a year later than it is to scare yourself so much that you never go at all.